Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, this has been an interesting week. I think this week is kind of a rebooting week for many. You think about what we've all just gone through, uh, the Una holiday that exists from Thanksgiving until New Year's. Uh, really, every year, that period of time uh, just takes on a totally different rhythm, doesn't it? A lot of different things happening. You might, you know, you're traveling to be with family, you're seeing friends, you, you've got more commitments in the evenings and, and parties or whatever else you've got. You've got shopping to do and food to cook and all this stuff. And, and for that, that period of time, everything just kind of gets unsettled a bit. And then as soon as the first week of January comes around, everything kind of reboots. Everything kind of restarts. And that's really the spot that, that I've been in this week, and I'm sure that many of you are going through the same thing. And as a part of that rebooting or restarting process, uh, you're probably thinking through what your hopes are for 2011. You might have come up even with a few New Year's resolutions, things like that. Uh, well, this morning and the next three weeks, actually, we're going to be starting a series that will, will help us as we think about the new year. Um, and we're going to be doing that by looking at the life of the Apostle Peter um, from the time when uh, Jesus was crucified on through to Peter's role in the foundation of the early church. And we're going to be looking at that over the next three weeks. But before we open up the Scriptures together this morning, I, I want to pray for our time. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for just Your goodness to us. Thank You for Your love, and thank You for Your presence here. Father, it's not just idle words. We want to hear from You today. Father, we don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from You. And so, Father, I pray that You would help me just to step out of the way and that Your Spirit would speak to each of our hearts today. You've promised to speak to us through your word, and so we're going to read a lot of it this morning. And Father, I, I pray that as we do, that your spirit would illuminate the text for us, that it would open our hearts, that we could see and hear and understand what you have for us today. Father, I pray that you would protect me this morning from saying anything you wouldn't want said, but anything I share today that you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. And Father, anything that I say today, though, that you would want us to hear, I pray that we would remember it, that we would believe it, and that we would walk forward in it in faith as we leave this place, and the power of your Spirit, that we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned that the last few weeks, uh, for many of us, has involved some degree of travel, and, and uh, you know maybe it was going to see family or friends or Maybe it was taking advantage of some time off for a little bit of a vacation. And I know for the Robinson family, we had a little bit of all of that as we traveled to Bartlesville to be with uh, my family and Kimberly's family for Christmas. And then right after Christmas, we had scheduled a vacation together uh, to New York City. Now, we, we don't normally take big trips like this uh, uh, together, but this was exciting. We, we've been married now 15 years uh, this coming summer. And uh, we wanted to take advantage of uh, the opportunity to get away. We were going to be in Bartlesville anyway. We left our son with uh, grandma and grandpa. 
and uh, we were going to be catching a flight to New York to see New York at Christmas time. That was something that sounded pretty exciting to us to go to see a show on Broadway, uh, to go and 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 stand underneath the giant Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center, to to walk, you know, skipping and humming through Central Park. Uh, to, to eat at some of these incredible restaurants, to, to go ice skating outside in some picturesque city landscape. We had all of these dreams and all of these hopes, even maybe seeing the ball drop in Times Square on New Year's Eve. We had big hopes for the week after Christmas. And so we had our tickets, and we went to the airport on Monday morning, December the 27th. Now, a funny thing happened on the way to the airport. Uh, the skies opened up on the East Coast and dropped about two feet of snow. So when we get to the airport and we go to check in, we find out that our flight has been canceled. And as you look at the monitors in the airport and you see cancel, cancel, canceled, I'm thinking, this is no big deal. The flight's canceled. We'll be able to find another flight. So I, you know, I make my way up through the line and I get to the counter and I, I'm like, okay, our flight has been canceled, but, but now what? And they're like, okay, Mr. Robinson, we'd be happy to book you on a flight into New York City on Friday. <laughs> no, no, you don't understand. We're coming back here then. You know, we're going out there today. We're coming back here at the end of the week. They said, well, I'm sorry. You're not going to get anywhere near there. I said, okay, well, tell me what my options are. Can we, can we fly to Boston? No. Can we fly to Philadelphia? No. Can we fly to Washington, D.C.? No. Can we fly to Oklahoma City? Yes, you can get that far, but you can't get any further. And, and we're thinking, this is really terrible. Uh, and so I, I, I start thinking there's got to be a better way. And so get through the counter and, and, and leave, and the, this wave of people come up for the next flight in the American Airlines window, and I'm kind of like jumping rope with them. The wave of people would come through, then I'd go back up, and I'd armed with more information from the internet. What about this? What about that? What about this? No, Mr. Robinson. No, Mr. Robinson. No, Mr. Robinson. And after about two hours of going through those gymnastics, um, we pick up our bags, and we go back out to our car to leave the airport without tickets. New York City. Uh, And you know what? It was at that point that we felt pretty hopeless. You can imagine the feeling. You go out, you get your car, and you have to pay $8 to remove your car from the one place you want to leave it for a week. Um, And you're driving away. And and the, the feeling was just one of hopelessness. We can't get there. The vacation is ruined. I mean, sure, there, there, there are much bigger issues in the world, but at that moment, you know, both of us were just kind of depressed as we're leaving the place, thinking that, that, that all is lost. Um, and, you know, I, I was thinking about that experience and reflecting on it um, over the last uh, few days, uh, thinking about 2011 for all of us. You know, I, I think that if we're really honest with ourselves and if we're really honest with each other, uh, many of you would like to approach 2011, 2011 with some hope and some optimism But as you approach the gate of this year, you feel like your flight to whatever destination you wanted to go to has been canceled. Your flight to a happy marriage is canceled. Your flight to your relationship with your children being everything you hoped it would be is canceled. Your flight to fulfillment at work has been canceled. Your flight to fulfillment in your life is canceled. Your flight to intimacy in your relationship with the Lord has been canceled. You look at your year, and if we're honest, in in virtually all of us in some area, some of us, you know, totally in our area, we just feel rather hopeless when it comes to the next year. 
because we feel like our flight has been canceled. It could be from circumstances of events that are beyond our control. It could be from mistakes that we've made. It could be from decisions we've made. Whatever it is, I believe that there are many of us here who are looking at this new year with some degree of hopelessness. Because of that, I think it's really important for all of us to take a few weeks at the beginning of the year to just talk about how we can have hope in our lives. Talk about how we can have our hope restored. How did our hope get lost and how can we have our hope restored? That's what we're going to look at over the next three weeks as we look at the life of the Apostle Peter. Uh, And we're going to be doing that by following his life from the time that uh, Jesus went to the cross on through Peter's role in the early church. And we'll see how our hope can be restored, how the flight cannot be canceled on our 2011. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 14. That's where we're going to begin today. Uh, We're going to bounce around a little bit through Mark and Luke and John to see a little bit of the story of Peter unfold in the hours around Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, I think that as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see two things. One of them is we're going to see how hope is lost. And the second thing we're going to do is see how hope is found, how our hope can be restored. Uh, We're going to look at that in the life of Peter, like I said, Mark 14, beginning in verse 32. You see, Peter loses hope in the time leading up to and surrounding the crucifixion of Christ because he has what can be described in no other way as a really terrible day. When you think about epic bad days, Peter is getting ready to experience one in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. A variety of things happen to Peter and things that he does that combine to have him uh, really be in a position where he has lost his hope. Uh, The first thing that happens, we see picking up the action in Mark 14 and verse 32. Jesus had just spent some time with the disciples in the upper room. They just had shared the Last Supper together, and they had gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was going to pray. And in Mark 14, verse 32, it says this. It says, when they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. See, the picture is that Jesus, knowing what is ahead of him, knowing that the cross lies in the next day for him, gathers together his disciples and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. But when he gets to the garden, he takes his three closest wingmen and he says, hey guys, come with me, Peter, James, and John, let's go a little bit further. I need my guys with me. We're going to spend the night in prayer because tomorrow is going to be an exceptionally difficult day. And Jesus bows to pray and Peter and James and John bow to pray. But after a short time, Jesus comes back. Verse 37, Jesus came and he found them praying? No. Jesus came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? It's one of those moments in Scripture 
when, when Jesus starts calling Peter Simon, it's like when your parents used to call you by your full name, right? Uh, you know that this is not a happy conversation. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Peter's night begins with him going out to pray with Christ. And I believe that Peter's very intention was to stay up with Jesus and pray. When Jesus said, Peter, James, and John, you come further, Peter's chest probably bowed out a little further. That's right, I'm with him. I'm his wingman. We're going to go. We're going to spend the night in prayer. You guys stay back here. We're going to be with Jesus, and we're going to be with him all night. But just an hour later, Peter is asleep. See, his night begins with an expression of his personal weakness. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. Peter's night begins with his personal weakness. But the story continues for him. Over in John chapter 18 and verse 10, we find that after going back and forth through periods of sleeping and periods of Jesus confronting them about them sleeping and not praying, Suddenly, the Garden of Gethsemane is not this quiet place of prayer. It's this site where a lynch mob has assembled. Judas has come with a set of people that want to arrest Christ and want to ultimately lead him to his death, and, and, and they show up, and Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, and, and suddenly here they come to arrest Jesus and to carry him off to great harm. And Peter sees this. He's now wide awake. He sees what's unfolding, and it says in John chapter 18 and verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? See, Peter's night began with an expression of his personal weakness, but it continues here with him making a wrong decision. The men show up to arrest Christ, and Peter takes matters into his own hands, and he pulls out the sword, and he cuts off the servant's ear, and Jesus rebukes him now for the second time that evening and says, Peter, what are you doing? This is not the way this is going to play out. Peter made a wrong decision. And if the night would have ended there, it would have been bad enough for Peter, but we know that the events continue to unfold. You go back over to the book of Mark in in chapter 14, beginning in verse 66, the story of Peter resumes. At this point, Jesus is in the house of the high priest. He is going through this farce of a trial where they're trying to trump up some charges and send him off to his death. And Peter is in the courtyard outside of this large home, warming himself by a fire, and it says in verse 66 of Mark 14, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down, and he wept. See, it begins with his weakness, it continues with a wrong decision, but now we just get out and out sin. Peter makes a mistake. He experiences a great personal failure. At the time that Jesus needed him the most as a friend, he denies him. He says he didn't even know him. He, he curses the name of Christ right there within earshot of the trial that is going to lead Jesus to his death. See, Peter experienced this intense failure at that point. And he begins to weep because the hope is just draining out of him. But Peter's day gets worse still. Even after his weakness, even after his wrong decision, even after his personal failure and sin, the day gets worse because we know that Jesus leaves the high priest's house and after parading around through Pilate and other people, they take him out to the place of the skull And they crucify him there. Mark chapter 15 verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Continuing on in verse 46, Joseph of Arimathea bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped Jesus in the linen shroud, and he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. We don't know if Peter was within eyeshot of when Jesus was laid in that tomb, but imagine that he was. Imagine the thought that was going through his head was, my hope is buried with him. I have sinned against Jesus, and now he's gone. I can't make anything right. My hope for forgiveness my hope to to make a right decision instead of a wrong decision, my hope to have another chance to overcome my weakness, my hope for everything is dead there. And, And on top of all of that, Peter, as well as the rest of the disciples, would have had a hope of reigning with Jesus. They, they talked about it frequently. They had a hope that Jesus would establish his kingdom and that Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples would end up reigning with Christ. And as Jesus lay in the tomb, Peter probably sat there and watched that rock close over the top of it and thought, my flight was just canceled. My hope for the future is gone. Why Peter wept bitterly. Now let me ask you, can you relate to Peter at all? Can you relate to that? Now we've not gone through the experiences that Peter went through uh, because we live 2,000 years after the fact. Not because we necessarily would have done anything any better. But he was the one that went through that experience. But the, the Word of God is full of, of stories like this, true stories like this, so that we can identify and realize what we can expect from God when we experience similar things. You know, it's possible that our hope is dying because of our own personal weakness. You know, he couldn't stay awake. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. And, you know, when we look at 
this year for us? There's a, probably a sense where you look at this year and you think, there are things that I want to see happen this year. There's things that I want to, want to do this year. But when I look at my track record in the past, I realize that I am just a weak person that gives me no hope and no confidence that anything different might come from 2011. You think back to the beginning of 2010 when you made promises to be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better parent, to, to, to read your Bible more, to, to pray more, to whatever it was. You know, we, we had these, these lofty ideas a year ago as we have lofty ideas today. And we think back over the year and we think, I don't think I actually did some of those things. My spirit was willing. My flesh was weak. We're, we're, we're confronted with our weakness and it causes us to want to lose hope for the new year. Maybe that's part of where your hope is waning. Maybe it's not related to that. Maybe it's related to a, a, a decision that you made. You know, Peter made the decision to pull the sword and, and to attack. Jesus said that was the wrong one. And maybe you're looking at this year thinking, you know what, I made some decisions in the last half of 2010 or maybe even in the last week that just feel like the wrong decisions. I feel like I've, I've made mistakes in the decisions that I've made, and, and, and I think that's going to hamper me. It causes me to lose hope for the new year. Sometimes when we look back and we think, I wish I hadn't made that decision. I wish I'd have made a different decision. Why didn't I see that coming? Sometimes feelings like that have the effect of paralyzing us, don't they? We don't want to make any other decisions because we don't have confidence that we can make a right one. Peter would have been feeling some of those same things in the garden that night. Many of us experience those things, and when we, we were unable or unwilling or, or fearful to make a decision, we can lose hope when we look at a year that's going to be full of new decisions to make. Maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's in an area of personal failure or sin. Maybe there's a sense as you look into this year that you don't have hope for the year because you feel restricted by failures that you've done in the past. Maybe something in the last week, the last month, the last year. Maybe it was in the distant past. But whatever it is, there's sin or failure that we've committed that we feel like is hampering us or chaining us to our past. And sometimes I think about our sin and our failure in the way that it impacts us. I think of it as something that chains us to something in the past. You know, I, I spent a lot of time as a kid watching cartoons. One of my favorite cartoons was Looney Tunes, the Bugs Bunny cartoons, right? Two of the characters in the Bugs Bunny cartoons are Foghorn Leghorn and that big dog, right? Somebody out there has seen this show. Nod your head real big just so I don't feel alone. Okay, thanks. So Foghorn Leghorn, that big dog. And and Foghorn Leghorn knows that that dog can only run so far because he's tied up to his doghouse and he paints a line and he can tempt and tease that dog, and that dog will run after Foghorn Leghorn as hard as he can, but he gets to his limit, and the collar yanks, and the dog has to go back to the house. You know what? The reality is that because of our attitude and our thoughts concerning our sin and our failures in the past, many of us live our lives like that, chained to our failures in the past. And no matter how hard we try, we feel like we we run and we hit a wall, and it yanks us back to them. It yanks us back with feelings of shame. It yanks us back with feelings of guilt. It yanks us back. And, and, and even though we, we, we hear about things that we have a possibility of freedom and hope, we enter this year with a hopelessness for our life because we feel like we've been disqualified for whatever else God has because of something we're chained to in our past. 
Maybe that's some of what's causing you to feel a little hopeless today. Maybe it's beyond that, though. Maybe it's circumstantial. You know, when Jesus went into the grave and the stone was rolled across, Peter could do nothing about that situation. But it was a circumstance that he was going to have to live with. And as you look into this new year, it's possible that that you are feeling hopeless because of the circumstances of your life. You've just been told you've got cancer. You've just been told or just experienced a reality that your relationship with your children is not what you thought it would be. You just have seen what you thought was your, your bonus at the end of the year was small and your bills are big. You don't know if you're going to have job security into the new year. Whatever it might be, there, there are circumstances that are going on in your life that have the temptation of making you feel like you have no hope. You see, as we look into 2011, we can relate to Peter because there are things that all of us go through that have a temptation to want to make us feel hopeless. And it's critical that we think about this because hopelessness is a terrible thing. Hopelessness is a killer. Hopelessness sucks the vitality out of life. I mean, the, the expression that we had leaving the airport on, that, on Monday the 27th was, was not a happy expression, right? Um, the life of our trip had been sucked out of us. And that was just on a vacation. For many of us, as we look at this new year, if we're feeling hopeless about something, about our family, about our job, about our lives, about our spiritual life, but whatever it is, we've, when that gets sucked out, it, it steals our life. It steals our vitality. It wants to kill us, a, you know, an ounce at a time. You know, in, in radical senses, hopelessness is a killer because it might lead somebody in, in, a, in a radical way, somebody to commit suicide. But in far more subtle ways, hopelessness wants to suck our life out of us one day at a time. It's important for us to think about hopelessness because God doesn't want us to stay there. He doesn't want us to live there. You know, if we were to end this series right now, you would all walk away going, gee, Pastor, thanks for the encouragement today. Um, What a wonderful time. Thanks, Mark. I'll see you in three weeks when Bruce is back. Um, No, that... The reality is that there's more to the story. The, this, the, the, the title of the series is not Hopelessness Found. It's Hope Restored. We have opportunity to go from the hopeless feelings you might feel today in whatever areas of life that you're dealing with to a true hope for tomorrow. And that hope is not found in ourselves or our ability to perform or the altering of our circumstances ultimately. The hope is found only in Christ himself, and Peter found it. Uh, We know how the story continues. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 16 and verse 4. It says, looking up, Jesus is in the tomb, three days go by. Some women have gone out to tend to his grave. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw the stone that had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. In other words, alarm A went off, the stone is moved. Alarm B goes off, Jesus isn't here. Alarm C goes off, somebody else is here, a young man dressed in white. 
This is quite a startling situation for these women. It says, And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then this is just a beautiful phrase. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and the one who particularly has lost hope. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And so the women leave, and they they run back to where the disciples were staying, and they run in, and they begin to explain all this. And Luke 24, verse 10, picks up the story for us and says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They come and they say, guess what we saw, guess what's happened, and the disciples go, yeah, right. Ten of the eleven disciples said that. Verse 12 tells us what the eleventh disciple did. Verse 12 says, but Peter, the one who previously had lost hope, rose and he ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. See, Peter had gone from hopelessness to having his hope restored. And the reason why that happened for him is because the tomb was empty. His hope was buried with Christ, but in the same way, his hope was resurrected with Christ. And the same thing is true for us. Our hope today is found not in ourselves, not in our ability to manage or change our circumstances. Our hope is found in Christ alone. And this hope that we have is a living hope. Because Jesus is alive. Uh, Peter describes this situation later on in his life in the epistle that he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when he says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. Peter was dead to this world when Christ was buried in the tomb. But he was given a new chance, a new life when Christ was raised from the dead. He has caused us to be born again, Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, Peter's hope and the hope that we have is the same hope that Peter has. It is attached to the fact that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Our hope is in him, and if he is resurrected from the dead, we have hope for all things. He is the one that can grant us forgiveness for our sins to break that chain that has tied us to our past. He's the one that will guide us through the new opportunities that we have so that we can trust Him in the decision-making processes that lie ahead of us. He's the one who can provide grace and comfort and peace to us in the midst of varying circumstances. You see, He is the one 
who can provide all those things for us. And the fact that the tomb is empty and He is risen means that we have a hope that is alive. Our hope is not dead. Peter knew that. And in thinking about that and, and reflecting on it made me think of uh, Pete Rose. Uh, so some of you uh, will, will readily know who Pete Rose is. Pete Rose is one of the greatest baseball players that ever lived. As a matter of fact, he is the all-time hits leader uh, in, in baseball. And if you look at the record books, uh, the baseball record books, you'll find Pete Rose's name all over them. But the one place where you won't see Pete Rose's name is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And the reason why Pete Rose's name is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame, this is a familiar fact to, to um, probably all of you, is because in 1989, Pete Rose was accused of and had a case built against him that he had bet on the game of baseball. Now, that's the ultimate no-no in the major leagues. The one thing that you cannot do in professional baseball is bet on baseball. You can kill somebody and be an all-star, right? Um, you, can, you can bend rules with steroid use, and you can be a home-run king, but you bet on the game, and, you, and you're excluded from baseball um, you know, it, it, with, with, with big penalty. And in 1989, the league built a case against Pete Rose that he had bet on the game of baseball, possibly even betting on the Cincinnati Reds, the team that he was managing at the time. And so the, the commissioner of baseball at that time was a man named Bart Giamatti. And Bart Giamatti went to Pete Rose and he said, Look, Pete, you broke the rules. Uh, we believe that you broke them. And so uh, I, I like you, Pete. You're baseball. You're the face of baseball. I want to create a situation where we can punish you but that you could still be a part of the game in the long run. And so Bart Giamatti's first offer to Pete Rose was, he said, look, Pete, just apologize. Say you're sorry you did it. I'll give you a 10-year ban from baseball. And after 10 years, you can come back and be a part of the game. Pete said, I won't do it. I won't agree that I had broke the rules. Jesus said, okay. So Giamatti comes back a second time and says, what about seven years? You admit that you did it. You apologize. Seven-year ban, then you're back. Pete says, I won't do it. I won't admit that I did it. So Giamatti comes back, three years, three years, and say you're really sorry, and we'll let you back in. And Pete says, I won't do it. And so finally, Bart Giamatti says, look, we've got to make an example of you. So here's what we're going to do. I will not make you apologize and say that you did wrong, but I'll give you an indefinite suspension to baseball, reviewable again in one year. And in a year, I'll reinstate you, but right now you'll be removed from the game. And Pete Rose says, that's an offer I can, I can deal with. So Pete Rose and Bart Giamatti shake hands on the deal. Nine days later, Bart Giamatti died. Faye Vincent took over as the commissioner of baseball. And Faye Vincent did not have the same soft spot in his heart for Pete Rose that Bart Giamatti did. And Faye Vincent refused Pete Rose's appeal to be reinstated after a year. Now, 21 years later, Pete Rose is still out of the game of baseball. And if you really want to know the truth as to why Pete Rose is not in the Hall of Fame and why he's not managing some team in the big leagues right now, the answer is his hope died with Bart Giamatti. You know what? If Jesus were still in the dead, uh, still in the grave, our hope would have died with him. 
the promises of forgiveness, the promises of life, the promises of purpose, the promise of sending His Spirit, the promise of eternity, all of those things would still be in the grave with Christ. But because He rose from the dead, we don't have a dead hope, we have a living hope. The great truth of Christianity is we never have to worry about God changing His mind because our hope is not dead, it's alive. It's not just something written on the books It's not some backroom handshake agreement. It's a living hope with a living Savior who is offering us hope for 2011 and beyond into eternity. We have hope because Christ is alive. And when you think about your year and you're, you're dealing with these bouts of possible hopelessness for whatever it is, the medical situation or the financial situation or the relational situation or whatever it is, We can have hope this year. Today, this morning, we have hope because the tomb is empty. So when we think about applying this truth for us, there's a couple of things. One of the things we need to remember when we seek to apply this this truth to our lives is that we can be with Christ as well. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead allows us the opportunity to experience life with Him right now as a reminder of the living hope that we have. Christ's body in this world, He calls the church the body of Christ. One of the things that that we can do to remind ourselves of the hope in 2011 that we have because the tomb is empty is spend time with the body of Christ. You can make it a priority to gather to worship with other believers in a place like this. We can make it a priority to connect with a small group of believers. Maybe it's some friends, a a lunch group. Maybe it's it's a a small group that meets in homes. Maybe it's one of our adult fellowship groups in our bulletin each week. There's opportunities to connect there or a college uh, Bible study or a youth wave ministry or something like that. It's an opportunity to connect with other believers who, who can remind us of the hope that we have that is beyond our circumstances. We have women's Bible studies that are kicking off. You can find information about that in the bulletin, out in the gathering hall. One of the things that we can do to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ is we can be with the body of Christ who share this perspective that the tomb is empty. Another thing that we can do beyond just being with the body of Christ, we can also listen to the voice of Christ. And this is speaking to us through His Word. It's one of the things I, I mentioned earlier. One of the reasons why we... We, we read the Scripture today as we believe that God has preserved His words for us in the Bible. When we read the Bible, we're, we're hearing the voice of God. One of the things that you can do this year to remind ourselves of the hope that we have is you can read His Word. If you're, if you're looking for a place to start, I mean, maybe you just start with some of the passages that we were reading this morning. Maybe start reading at the beginning of the book of Mark and, and read all the way through. We think, wow, it's a whole book of the Bible. It's 16 chapters. It's, a, you know, 7, 8, 10 pages, depending on the size of your, of, of your Bible. Maybe 30 pages in your Bible. Just read through the Gospel of Mark. Maybe read through the Gospel of John. Just as you start this year, if you're looking for a place to begin. But when we, when we read those things, We're reading them to remind ourselves of the hope that we have. We're listening to the voice of the one who has left the tomb. You see, we have this temptation to hopelessness, but our hope is restored in Christ. Now, as we end today, I want to just uh, kind of tie a bow on this story. You know, I began talking about how we had this difficulty of getting out 
uh, to New York. We left the airport. We're driving away from the airport, hopeless. We can't get there. We get just beyond that $8 charge for removing our car from the airport, and uh, it hits us. What if we flew as far east as we could, rented a car, and drove the rest of the way? We turn around, we go back in, we find we can fly to Pittsburgh. That's as close as we can get. We can rent a car, drive across the state of Pennsylvania, leave the car at the Newark airport and take a train into Manhattan. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, and we, we arrived there the next, the next day on Tuesday. Um, and you, know, you see, a, see a picture of us up here. Um, you know, don't we look like people who, who have hope restored? Uh, this was on Friday, the day that we were supposed to get there. Instead, this is at the end of the trip on, on New Year's Eve in, in New York City. Uh, we had this hope restored. And, you know, we, we had our hope restored because even though our flight was canceled, we were able to work with our, our you know, whatever power to, we had to planes, trains, and automobiles our way out there, right? Uh, Del Griffith, the shower curtain ring guy, was with us on that journey. But we made it out there, um, and we, we, we had worked those, those levers ourselves. One of the things that we need to remember in the spiritual life, though, is that this analogy ultimately breaks down. Because in the Christian life, We don't solve our hopelessness by figuring out another way. We solve our hopelessness by realizing that the flight is never canceled. Christ is still the answer, and he's still the one that will take us to where we want to go this year. He's just asking that we trust in him. Let me me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time, and I, I thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together. I thank you for this body of people. And Father, collectively, I thank you that you have given us hope. Hope for this year, not because we're great, not because we have all the answers, but hope because you have the answers for us. And you um, have raised your son from the dead so that we don't have to enter this year with a dead hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name.